This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Robert Greenway, who serves as the director of the Allison Center for National Security at the Heritage Foundation. They discuss the Heritage Foundation's 2024 Index of U.S. Military Strength and the findings' implications on U.S. foreign policy, defense spending, and military readiness. Robert Greenway, welcome to the show. Thanks for the opportunity. Good to be with you. Well, you are currently director of the Allison Center for National Security at the Heritage Foundation and responsible for... uh, the latest edition of the Index of Military Strength, first published back in January of 2015, uh, important contribution. The Heritage Foundation consistently makes year over year since 2015 on national defense. Uh, and you come to Heritage after serving in the Trump administration, where you were senior director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs on Security Council, uh, and I have my own military background as a senior intelligence officer in the Defense Intelligence Agency's uh, U.S. Central Command. So you've done that. Uh, of course, a veteran, uh, important to mention here, multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. So come to this with a lot of experience and knowledge, uh, civilian side, the military side. Take a second just to uh, explain to our listeners and viewers uh, the significance and, and, and why the Heritage Foundation has chosen to focus uh, in such a comprehensive way on the index of military strength. I'm sure happy to do it, and I think it's a it's a great question. For the last 10 years, and this is our 10th annual edition, we have consistently evaluated sort of the biggest questions, and there's a lot of information publicly available about our defense enterprise and about global threats, but oddly enough, it's not all in one place, and so uh, we found the reconstruction of that information had some gaps in it. There aren't, in fact, some good assessments of our own military capabilities that are conducted independent of government, and our judgment is, I think that's a good conversation Uh, and the American people and Congress should have an independent perspective on the performance of one of the biggest investments we make as a country and one of our most important constitutional obligations. So just the quick explanation is for 10 years, we have consistently measured four things. The first are the threats to the United States, that which we have a military to address. The second is the operating environment in which we are likely to encounter those threats around the world. And the third is the status of our national military strength, our armed forces, in order to meet those threats in that environment. And we also account for our partners and allies. And so those are the four corners of the index consistently measured using the same methodology for 10 years, telling a consistent but unfortunately depressing story. Well, we're going to get to the depressing story, uh, but in all four pieces of the Heritage Foundation's Index of Military Strength, and of course, you get this trend analysis here because, you, as you just noted, you do it year over year, which is uh, usually important uh, to have that context there. Um, the theme of this year's index is a decade of decline. So there we go. That's part of the the, the story that, uh, that you were just referencing. Expand upon that. Well, what do you mean by a decade of decline? Is that across all four of those categories? Is it a general point? Uh, what do you lead with when you talk about the decade of decline? Yeah, so really for the last 10 years, we've noticed uh, an, an increase in risk an increase in threats to the United States. Certainly in the last two years, that increase has been sharp and noticeable. I think everyone would appreciate that. And at the same time, we see the opposite trend in our capacity and capability, those of the United States and our partners and allies to meet those threats. That's the decade of decline. 
But I'd also add, and probably why it's most appropriate that we're talking uh, to you and, and the Reagan Institute, is this is, in my mind, in our minds, this is analogous to another period of time in U.S. history in the mid-'70s, right, where this threat, the threat of the Soviet Union then in the previous Cold War was recognized coming out of Vietnam, and we were going to lose parity, and the Soviet Union was going to be a peer or near or better than peer competitor. But, but no action was taken until President Reagan uh, galvanized national will, recognized the problem, and reversed course in radical fashion, rebuilt and restored our defense supremacy, and gave us the armed forces that I think we all recognize, which was superior to any in not just contemporary, but probably in all of history. That enabled us to prevail in the Cold War. Unfortunately, after prevailing in the Cold War, we have now experienced really 30 decades of decline, or 30 years of decline, three decades, but we've only been measuring it for the last 10. But in reality, this this story is unfortunately three decades old. Yeah, uh, great set of points. And and you, the last buildup we had as a nation, as you point out, Rob, was under President Reagan. And, and it did come off of a period where, as you know, I mean, it really does rhyme uh, with where we're at today. Uh, just a perspective that we got from the Reagan National Defense Survey um, in terms of views of the American people, you may be familiar with it. One question we asked was, uh, using the language you just used a minute, moment ago in terms of military superiority versus parity versus military inferiority, and the American people, uh, majority believe that the U.S. military is enjoying superiority vis-a-vis -vis the People's Republic of China. And my sense, looking at uh, the Heritage Foundation's Index of Military Strength, that's not really where you had come out on it, um, you know, this decade of decline is is put us from a you know, kind of purely analytical basis uh, behind the curve as it relates to the People's Republic of China and the People's Liberation Army. Uh, they are, in many respects, uh, our peer, in some respects, perhaps superior. And then there may be others uh, where they are inferior, obviously, as you think about military strength, it covers a variety of different categories. Uh, give me your reaction, both to our survey, where the American people think that we have superiority versus the reality as you've captured it in the index of military strength. Well, I appreciate you bringing up the survey. Very familiar with it and a huge fan. And I think the two products uh, certainly are complementary and perception's important. Look, I, I think that generally speaking, uh, our military for lots of reasons is superior to what we see in the Communist Party of China. But to your point, we are rapidly losing that advantage from a quantitative and from a qualitative standpoint. We, you know, we've been at a disadvantage qualitatively before, but quantitatively, uh, you know, is where I think we see the challenge. And I see that challenge is not just in the in the conventional uh, military sense. It is very much in the nuclear as well. They're outpacing us in the construction of missile silos, of weapon systems and quantities. And they're building up production capacity to where by the end of the 2030s, they could be. Uh, outpacing us in terms of quantity, quality, uh, and just uh, general uh, types of rungs of ladders in the deterrence uh, escalation uh, ladder. So a, a lot of reasons for us to be concerned about it, and the time to act is now. And that's, again, why there's an analogy, I think, to when Reagan first came into office and the actions he took to confront the Soviet threat. We find ourselves in a similar circumstance. We're hopeful someone will be able to do what he did and galvanize the U.S. to respond.
I'm all for that. And that, that would be no surprise to any of our listeners and viewers that, you know, time has come that the United States really does require an investment in its military strength. We had a recent report out from CBO in terms of what the budget profile and deficit profile is for the United States. And we're at this point, which you and others anticipated knew was going to come, but it's here where we spend more money servicing the national debt than we do on national defense. And of course, the only budget categories where we're seeing significant increase in spending, if you look at overtime, it's in the rising cost of debt and in entitlement spending. In other words, yes, 50% of discretionary spending goes roughly to national defense, but historically it's it's low as a percentage of GDP. Well, how does that make sense? And Rob, as, a, as, a, as no doubt you understand and, and capture in part in this index of military strength, it's because what we are spending are things outside the discretionary budget category, for example, entitlement spending and the cost of service debt. And I raise that as context for the next question. Uh, one thing I really uh, respect about this report is that when you think about what kind of military the U.S. needs, uh, Rob, the index for military strength talks about the force planning construct, which is a fancy word in terms of Kind of how do we size our military and it takes a very kind of common sense historically informed approach and i'd love for you to elaborate on it where it says that we need a force that can probably fight two battles two wars near simultaneously which means you got to do two things uh pretty much at once talk about why that is kind of the force planning the force sizing construct that the index of military strength the heritage foundation is getting behind Right. So this is a this this gets into sort of the the tension between the size and the investment in the military that we have and the requirement to meet it. And what we do is uh, in the process of of completing the index is again the distance between the threats we face and the challenges in the environment in which we meet them and our own strength. And our judgment is consistent with what previously existed during the Cold War and the force planning construct, which said that the reality is we need to be able to meet two near simultaneous near peer competitors in in a conflict scenario and we need a force construct able to do it well since the conclusion of the cold war with the soviet union which we prevailed again thanks to the decisions uh and the the hard work of the reagan administration chiefly but others uh we we we've now squandered that investment almost entirely we've lived off of it most of our major weapon systems were designed in the 70s field in the 80s and we are still flying and driving them i think to our disadvantage in many cases and we need to reinvest if we don't have a force construct that's able to meet the rise threats we face in more than one theater, then we get into the current predicament, which is the incredibly difficult decisions to make from a policy and a fiscal standpoint. Look, we may determine as a nation we can't afford a military that size and meet our other obligations. We should do so knowing the risk associated with that decision. And our counsel would be that risk is measurable, that risk is considerable, and it is probably in excess of the requirement to make the investment. So our counsel is we need to be very, very careful about the investments that we make. And if we don't prioritize our military from a conventional nuclear standpoint, we are accepting an enormous amount of risk, perhaps for the first time in our history, where we may be at a conventional and a nuclear disadvantage to our competitors in the form of both Russia and China. That should not be done casually. It's not hard for people to imagine right now, Rob. I mean, the reality is we're seeing Russia, you know, 
flex and it started off uh, losing the battle it's in, uh, against Ukraine following its, its its aggression invasion of Ukraine. Now it's unclear how that's going to shake out. And certainly while Ukraine has diminished the military strength of Russia, there are no signs that Vladimir Putin is not going to reinvest and modernize even while he, he fights uh, Ukraine. And then, then the People's Republic of China and the People's Liberation Army, I mean, they are in investing in the most consequential modernization of, of, of military uh, in, in recent history, certainly in decades, probably rivaling what Reagan did and, and what the Soviets did following the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. You made a note in your comments, hey, the country needs to make a choice, right? How much risk is it willing to take on? Now, we are at historical lows. Um, when we think about how much we're spending on national defense, you know, roughly shy of 3% GDP past few years, we're not spending, um, kind of, we don't have any real growth in our national defense when you're, when you take into account inflation, what do you think, uh, would be required, Rob, in terms of investment in national defense to realize the sort of force, uh, the index for military strength is recommending? Well, so, you know, you hit on some of the most difficult decisions. We, we provide no recommendations uh, in the index by design, but we spend the, the rest of the year making recommendations to address the problems we identify. And we've started to do that now. And look, we look at it this in sort of two, two sort of boxes. The first is how do we improve upon the current military spending within existing top lines, right? So we're fiscal fiscal conservatives here uh, uh, in both of our institutions, and so we're ca we're careful about how we we uh, we posit recommendations. Our recommendations exist within the existing top line. How to make better use of defense money? There's ample opportunity to more prudently invest. We just recently found that the trend is for research development test and evaluation is is expanding and eclipsing procurement I think we I don't think we can afford to do that the army just announced they've killed a a, a multi-billion dollar investment in the next generation of aviation uh, reconnaissance aircraft I think it's probably the right call but we're making a lot of research and development investments when we probably ought to be focusing on procurement to meet the current threats our next uh, you know, phase is to set our sights more broadly with our colleagues uh, in uh, the econ and budget teams here within Heritage and with other counterparts to figure out where within the federal government can we make better use of the resources that we have. And in our minds, there's ample opportunity to do that. And look, at ultimately, to get to your question, you have to do what Reagan recognizes, the relationship between economic growth and national security. A national security is completely dependent upon a strong economy. The economy provides the resources to develop a strong national defense. And his actions were designed to build a strong economy so that we could enjoy strong national security. Obviously, we need pro-growth policies to increase increase economic growth so that we can, in fact, make the necessary investment. But to your point, we're going to have to make difficult decisions in the in the existing top lines and within the broader government allocation, and we still may need to make uh, some additional modifications. Yeah, that last point, and I think, broadly speaking, yeah, you need to have pro-growth economic policies that will complement and certainly uh, build support for a military buildup, but it's quite substantial what the index for military strength is talking about. I mean, 50 brigade combat teams for the U.S. Army, uh, 400 battle force ships for the U.S. Navy, um, you know, similar growth, proportional growth for the Air Force, Marine Corps, 30 battalions, uh, Space Force. We know that's going to be something that's at least there's nothing real baseline to compare it to, but that's another uh, new service out of the Trump administration that we're going to have to 
fund and 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 give assets to. You know, but roughly speaking, you know, that's about a quarter to third larger force than we have today. If you look at the current assets of, you know. 30 brigade combat teams or, you know, 270, 80, 90 ships. Right. So it's, it's substantial and I'm not criticizing Rob, the work here. I tend to agree with it, but you can go ahead and realize efficiencies within the department of defense. And we should, we should go under that hood and look at the current program and make it more impactful thousand percent, but you're not going to, even if you do that and you find those savings, Rob, in my view, but feel free to disagree with me, you're not going to be able to find enough savings that's going to allow you to invest to realize a force that's a quarter larger than we are today or a third larger than we are today. It's going to require additional capital. I see some head nodding, but I want to put words in your mouth. Go ahead. Give me a reaction to that. Yeah, look, I think that's the ongoing debate. Uh, and I would agree, you know, with uh, uh, my friend and colleague, Bridge Colby, who talks about the difficult choices that we have to make. Uh, what, what he would accurately, I think, define as being super real in our prioritization of Indo-PACOM and the Chinese threat in particular. And look, we put ourselves in a position where, like it or not, we have to make difficult decisions because we're not going to get to the solution to the threat in the near term without difficult allocation of additional resources. To your point, this is going to take a long time to get out of the hole that took us a long time to get into. I think it comes down to three things fundamentally. We have to figure out a way to diminish the capacity of our, our adversaries. And we could do that in, in among a number of ways by, one, obviously, uh, Ukraine has been able to attract the Russian forces, but they are generating. Uh, I think, second, we need to apply economic pressure to, again, deny our adversaries the resources necessary to expand, right? So it's economic growth on either side. You know, Russian oil and gas exports are fueling military power, right? Well, that's a that's that's a decision that we have an influence over. Likewise, the Chinese economy is fueling their growth. Uh, and so at the same time, that's an exogenic economy that requires resources from outside of China. We have a vote in exactly how that's obtained. So I think we need to constrain the growth of our adversaries' economies to our advantage and restrict economic growth that fuels military growth and threats. Second, partners and allies. Often, uh, the logic is they help you address the gaps between your capabilities and the adversaries. That's not the case now. The picture we paint is their capacity is, is even worse than ours. It doesn't appreciably add. That has to radically change. And that is not going to be an easy and sometimes unpleasant conversation, but it's absolutely essential for their security and ours. So our partners and allies need to likewise expand their capacity so collectively we present uh, and satisfy some of the deficiencies we identify in the index. Again, these are steps that need to be taken immediately in order to address this threat. What's left is risk, and what we point out is you cannot ignore it. It has to be recognized and it has to be addressed. Yeah, a good set of points on the allies and, and the adversaries and the strategies to weaken the adversaries and, and to benefit from strength and allies is sound. Just note that in terms of what the way I read the index and military strength is, there are things we have to do as a nation to strengthen and improve and grow our military. And we also need our allies to be strong in order to counter the adversary. In other words, it's not the sort of thing where we can continue the military as it is today and think that the gap, whatever that gap is, that absorbed risk can be addressed by allies because it actually, we need to, we need to make sure that both variables are changing and making us stronger on each front. And I, and I see you agreeing there. Now, I want to break down the, the allies piece, quite interesting work uh, that you have in there. Europe stands out um, despite that, you know, about 
19 or so of NATO allies are not at their 2% GDP commitment going to national their national defense, still feel uh, in the report that it gets a Europeans kind of is an excellent rating and you can explain why that is, but it was stronger than I would have expected. It means that the Europeans are bringing some capability to the table. Uh, makes sense to me that with Sweden and Finland now as NATO allies, um, or, they'll be there soon, right? Or they're approved and they'll be integrated into NATO. Uh, it's a stronger fighting force, but take a minute to talk about uh, that assessment in terms of what Europe brings to the table. I think if you read the, news day to day and you talk about Europeans not giving enough, not contributing enough, you might have assumed that they would have given an, been given a different grade. Right. So what we're really evaluating there is more the operating environment. One, that we have an alliance that is built on standardization, on common systems and platforms and interoperability. It's a luxury we frankly don't have in many other, if any other part of the world. And that advantage counts. It matters. Uh, we can criticize, and rightly so, the commitment each member makes to support their own national defense and the collective, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but the fact that we have a platform built on interoperability and uh, sustainability of uh, a common force and common logistical requirements is pretty important. Second is that we have basing and access uh, infrastructure across Europe from which we can conduct operations. That is also critically important. And again, we don't have that luxury everywhere in the world to the extent that we have it in Europe. And that's important to mention across all domains for maritime, land and air. And you could add space to that. So I think what we're trying to account for here is that we have made an investment for generations and we have an alliance and we have partners and allies. And so we're not at, we're not starting from zero. That's the good. Now, the bad is the fact that, as you point out, that even with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that that was that, you know, for the second time in a decade, we could not deter, unfortunately. And also both times uh, we see that President Biden was in the White House, then as vice president, now as president. And we were unable to deter that. And now we have to deal with the consequences. And even with that, we don't see the commitment made on the part of each country to make the difficult decisions themselves. And they're really counting on others, especially the United States, to provide collective security. And that's a dangerous position for them to be in. And of course, uh, we expect that the United States is going to increasingly pressure them to get above it. Some countries are starting to move in that direction. And I look, look the exemplars here are the Baltic states and Poland in particular um, are leading the way. I hope the rest of Europe and new NATO members, I think, will will add uh, their capabilities to the mix and increase their defense spending. And look, the Wales Agreement at 2% made sense then. Now I think we see that as the basement, not as the ceiling of what defense contributions. It ought to be more like the United States at 3 to 3.5%. I think, to meet the current security threats. And if they're really concerned with Putin, and they all say they are, and they all are, then they need to show it in their investments rather than just expect us to foot the bill. Yeah, it's a great set of points in terms of how we look at the 2% really needs to be a floor. Uh, Finland and Sweden are going to go a long way. I mean, they've effectively been operating as NATO allies, despite not being formally members of the alliance. But your first set of points is critical, and people kind of look past that, I think, from time to time. They get frustrated with the free rider problem of some of our NATO allies, and that is understandable. But the infrastructure, the planning, the ability to operate together – in our armed conflict is substantial. Note that the only time that we've actually triggered Article 5 uh, was after 9-11, when NATO allies joined uh, the United States and responded to attacks on 9-11 in going after the Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda. Um, 
let's let's talk about the Middle East. Obviously, we're having this conversation at a time where you have Iranian proxies attacking U.S. forces. You have Hamas's attack on Israel and Israel's now response. You have the Houthi attacks on uh, commercial vessels in the Red Sea. I mean, this is a variety of stuff. Most of, of the work that went into the index, presume, was prior to October 7th. How does the rating in the Middle East look to you? We have partners. Uh, we don't really have any kind of alliance infrastructure of the kind that really will uh, have a material impact in terms of planning and operating in the event that the United States uh, needs allies to support them in conflict in the Middle East or elsewhere from that region. Yeah, I'll start there. Look, I, we have a history of par uh, partnership and cooperation. It's always ad hoc. The most recent manifestation was the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS, which was successful uh, as a construct. Uh, but we've had several arrangements to conduct counterterrorism operations and to address counter piracy, counter drug problems. Um, but those are circumstantial. They're very limited. They're constrained. And I don't think uh, get us anywhere near the type of organizational structure that we just talked about that we have uh, in NATO. So we have basing, we have a history, we have partners and allies, but I think we have two problems. One is that all of that basing that we have in the Middle East made sense potentially after the Gulf War 91, but hasn't since. And in that, much of it is within the entire ballistic missile range of all of Iran's inventory. And so all of those could be contested entries uh, for us to project force, which is what they're designed to do. And if that's the case, then you can't rely upon it. But now we are seeing the lines of communication, maritime especially, Especially under threat. So the introduction of forces and their destinations are both under threat, changes the complexion of the environment and the force structure necessary to respond to crisis or to deter. And unfortunately, we're not deterring the crisis. And ultimately, you know, the conflict in Gaza is unlikely to abate. Uh, the conflict in Lebanon, I think, is in the beginning uh, stages, not the end. And the maritime threats from the Houthis, as well as Iraq and Syria, are growing. But the, the greatest risk I think we face now is a nuclear-armed Iran and the potential uh, application of that weapon in their, in their hands would have massive detrimental economic and security effects upon not just the region, but globally. Uh, and, and I think that concern is something that's going to have to be addressed in the very near term. It is not satisfactorily being addressed now. The implications on global force structure, again, are do we have the ability to introduce forces into a region? And, and again, you know, to get to the point of do we or do we not need to be in the Middle East? Again, the reason here is uh, I would say that, you know, the Carter administration stated very clearly that our interests, our vital national interest was the preservation of global energy trade from the region because the U.S. was a consumer. We're no longer dependent upon Middle Eastern oil, but the rest of the world is. China certainly is. And so we have no choice but to preserve the stability of global markets unless we want to eat the cost associated that could climb double or triple what they are now, impacting every commodity. And there's no way for the United States to insulate itself from it, whether we like it or not. And so we have worked with partners in the region who have a massive stake and output in order to bring the Soviet Union uh, to collapse. And I think we should be mindful again, of the fact that we should stabilize markets for our own economy's sake, but also because China is dependent upon it. And strategically, I don't think we want to, want to want to ensure that they have unlimited, unrestricted access to oil fueling their military aspirations. 
Uh, again, we're with Rob Greenway from the Heritage Foundation, is director of the Allison Center for National Security. And we're discussing the index of military strength. This has been published annually since 2015. Rob, really great set of points in terms of how we have to think about what the U.S. interest is in the Middle East. We want energy independence. We're certainly not as dependent today as we were, as you note, when the Carter Doctrine was announced back in 1979 uh, or early 1980. But it is a global market. And if we see instability in commerce and trade going through uh, the Strait of Hormuz or uh, the Gulf, uh, you know, it's going to be uh, an impact felt not only in that region, but across the world, including an American home. So this notion of independence really needs to be understood in the context of a wider global market. And yes, uh, good point that this is not only something that uh, impacts us at home if, if it's unstable, but there are also other players here that have deep interest in energy coming out of the Middle East, uh, the People's Republic of China being the starting example. Let's go to that last region and and, and talk about uh, Indo-PACOMs, the military Asia uh, more broadly. I'm going to read to you uh, your characterization and index of military strength of, of the region and and have you expand upon it. it says we continue to assess the asia asia reason as favorable to u.s interest in terms of alliances overall political stability militarily relevant infrastructure and the presence of u.s military forces so all the things you were talking about that are relevant as we think okay are we gonna be able to operate in 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 regions of the world uh and i think the Biden administration has done some good stuff here with respect to AUKUS, for example uh continuing to uh, build out infrastructure working with the philippines building it's one of the areas of continuity between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, at least in this respect. Yet, at the same time, and this gets back to our point earlier in the conversation, this is contested space. The PLA, the People's Liberation Army, they are building up a military capability with tremendous industrial capacity behind it to push us out and to make it very difficult for the United States to operate, certainly in a permissive environment, and at best it's going to be a semi-permissive environment, depending on what we're talking about. It will be full-on contested space. So I get we're building the infrastructure and, and how you assess the region, but the enemy's voting here, and they're making it really difficult for us. Uh, and with every passing week, month, year, as we discussed at the outset, it looks like it's going to be a fair fight, which of course our military and our political leadership has always wanted to make sure that the U.S. military never enters a fair fight. Yeah, I know you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I think you know on the positive side of the ledger, we we note that we have partners that we have a history working with them in this region as we do in others, and we have a common interest, and and, and they are desperately concerned about uh, Chinese encroachment on the first island chain and beyond, and so uh, that's important. We also have strong economic ties that always provides a very solid rationale for security cooperation because you want to protect and defend that because you depend upon it, and so that is on the positive side of the ledger. On the negative side of the ledger as we've seen elsewhere, we don't have the capacity to, to satisfactorily deter uh, CCP uh, uh, escalation and provocation because it's happening on an increasing basis year over year, not just related to Taiwan, but more broadly in the region. Uh, second, uh, the capacity of our partners and allies is not expanding to address the threat. They're doing good things, but it isn't enough. And so in both of our parts. Now, I'll say the last thing we don't spend as much time in the index about, but concerns me greatly is we have to project a significant force that we don't have a significant distance across the Indo-PACOM, the other side of the world. 
And when we've had to do this in the past, we've had massive infrastructure and sustainment uh, uh, capacity in order to do that. And I'm thinking here about fuel and ammunition in particular. We don't have the ability to do that. Even if we built the Navy that we, we say we need and should have to address the threat, we also will not have the infrastructure to sustain and project that force. That has something that we're going to spend time and attention on this coming year, and we're going to do it in partnership with, with the Navy itself and with Congress in order to get there. And that concerns me greatly. Uh, and there is no, no plan yet in place in order to do that. Yeah, that last point is super interesting. We think about contested space. Obviously, you're thinking about, okay, well, we won't be able to move freely within the region, but particularly as you talk about Indo-Pacific and these great distances from continental United States, it's going to be contested the moment you leave, if you can even leave the United States, right? So this is a really new environment of contested logistics. And of course, you could look at U.S. military success and capability, what made it stand out and made us supreme is that we had the freedom of movement. And we're able to get where we need to be when we want to, how we wanted to. And that's all being challenged uh, by the People's Republic of China and the People's Liberation Army, the PLA. Uh, we're going to close out this discussion on the work of the Heritage Foundation on their uh, index of military strength. Again, we're with Rob Greenway from the Heritage Foundation. I want to end with the industrial base. Uh, this is a quote from the report. It says, DOD, the Department of Defense, needs to begin thinking beyond simply procuring items it needs. Far more attention must be paid to developing and maintaining production capacity. And the only issue I'd have with that sentence, it ends with a period, and I would put like 10 exclamation points, Rob. This is a huge challenge for us. Again, it's going to cost a tremendous amount to do this, uh, even if we just focus on maintaining production um, capacity and, and, and addressing, you know, munitions. I mean, this is from shipbuilding to ship maintenance to the ammunition we just referenced. How do you wrap your arms around this? Uh, because it's not the sort of thing that the Department of Defense puts in their annual budget. It's it's much of it would be capital expenditure and the sorts of things that the current program wouldn't fund. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Um, and we, we've got, as you know, over this last number of decades, we've had massive consolidation within the defense industry uh, in the commercial space. We're down to four majors. Most of the small, medium-sized enterprises in the defense national security space were decimated uh, for all kinds of reasons. And some of that were, look, perverse sort of competition we've inserted into the system. Uh, and look, uh, and you're right, this is something that is deeply concerning because the solution to all of the problems we identify requires a defense industrial base that can start producing. And the United States, frankly, is not in the producing business. We just don't manufacture at the scale that we used to. And so we're down to single factories for propellant, single factories for tank production, and these are massive vulnerabilities. So that's got to be changed. Now, the one cause for optimism, I would say in this, is in our judgment, there is a way to do this that is up to the economic advantage. So it doesn't come at, at a complete cost, even though it's warranted. What it does come is prevents us the opportunity to rebuild large parts of our economy for our own benefit. And this is an area where I think there's there's room for us and improvement that can be made. And it, it includes vocational training for a lot of the currently non-committed part of our population. There's like 30% of our male population is not competitive in the job market. It's not even looking for a job anymore. We can mobilize, I think, that part of our population, put them to work, and give them high-paying jobs in the defense sector that also have commercial application because we need to build ships that aren't just for military use. So there's a way, I think, out of it 
where we can be, I think, creative and, and jumpstart our own economy to meet some of our own most acute needs. I think that's going to have to be the way we proceed in order to get the political outcomes, as you know better than most. There, it's a hard sell to, to you know to write a check. It's a better plot, I think, for us to pursue an investment in the American economy. I think that's what it's going to take. Yeah, it has to have a a. a, a persuasive economic argument demonstrating that this is something that's going to benefit the U.S. economy as well as U.S. national defense. Um, you know, do note that providing for the common defense and promoting the general welfare, those things are complementary uh, and providing for the common defense comes first in the Constitution. But I digress. Let's move to the lightning round. This is where we ask all our guests to share their favorite Reagan speech book and quote. Rob, what do you have to share with us today? So the March 1983 speech, uh, President Reagan actually covered a lot of ground, as he often did, and, and expertly communicated in a very short and uh, succinct way, as he was uniquely capable of doing, to the American people and provided them the rationale. At a time when our economic situation was, frankly, um, less than stellar uh, and the, the general malaise in the country was still high, I think he charted towards a better future, and it included a strong national defense, to your point. And so that March 83 speech, I think, has been inspirational for us even still because the circumstances are very, very similar. We included, in fact, a clip in the small video we did to launch the index, which you can get to on our website. And we would be remiss if we didn't draw inspiration from that, that call to national action that he made in March of 83 and subsequently to great effect. I hope that someone recreates that speech and communicates that same message to the American people. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, look forward to having you back, and hopefully between now and the next time, we will make progress against uh, this year's outcome of the Index for Military Strength. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.